As we continue our series in uh, the letter of 1 John, I want to remind you that John is writing to a church, much like us, but in in a place probably that's known as Ephesus. And, And this church is reeling because several members in the church began denying Jesus was the true Christ. Several people in the church began denying that he was the eternal son of God, whose death provided forgiveness for sins. So these false believers then, they they left the church, and and it, it appears that they continued trying to convince the remaining Christians in the church to to buy into their teaching about this denial of of Jesus, this, this higher knowledge. So John here, in this letter, those verses you just read, John is writing to those who have remained in the church, and he's trying to give them assurance that they do indeed believe in the true Christ, and they have the true spirit, unlike these people who have abandoned them. George Whitfield, many of you may know a figure named George Whitfield. He was perhaps the most famous preacher and evangelist in in Great Britain in in the 18th century. Even secular histories, non-Christian histories of, of Great Britain have to discuss George Whitfield because he had such a massive impact on British society in the 18th century. George Whitfield came to faith while reading a little booklet that was given to him by the great hymn writer Charles Wesley. And this booklet was actually written by a Scottish minister named Henry Scougal. Kind of a funny name. But the book was entitled, The Life of God in the Soul of Man. So this book had a profound impact, even led to Whitfield's conversion. And in this book, Scougal is asking one basic question. What is true religion? It's an important question. We're still asking it today. Talk to people all the time who aren't Christians, and, and they are thinking, oh, there's so many religious options. Can we actually know what true religion is? So Skugel looks into the Bible to find this answer. What is true religion? And he, he first tells us that true religion does not reside in three places. First, true religion is not merely theological correctness. Meaning, meaning, what does that mean? True religion is just not knowing the right facts about God and yourself. Second, true religion is not simply doing moral things. Not only knowing the right facts, but having the right morals. Third, true religion, he says, is not about having this deep emotional experience. Or it's not about fundamentally your emotions. And even today, 400 years after Skugel wrote this booklet, you'll still find people placing the essence of religion in one of these three three categories. Knowing the right things, doing the right things, or feeling the right things. Of course, knowing truth, doing right, feeling right, are all good and necessary in true religion but they're not the source of it. True religion, says Skugel in this book, he says, lies in the union between the soul of man and the life of God. The life of God inside the soul of man is true religion. To put it in biblical terms, Christ formed within us. 
What he's talking about is fellowship with God. Communion with divine life. And the last three words of our passage today, if, I'm only going to talk until verse 27. By the way, if, if you don't have, I, I would encourage you to uh, bring your, the red Bible out. We're on page 1126. I'm going to be constantly referring to that. So this, this talk will get very boring very quickly if, if you don't have that out. The last three words are remain in him. In verse 24, John says, As for you, see that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you will also remain in the Son and the Father. If you, the main point of this passage, the one thing that you really need to get from this passage is this. The Spirit of God has taken residence in your heart, Christian. And you now have fellowship, communion, with, the God, with God the Father and his son. So, John's point, don't abandon the son. Don't forsake the fellowship you enjoy. Henry Skugel would say, don't forsake true religion. So in this passage, you see the four points that are laid out for you. We're going to have first a warning for those who don't remain, assurance for those who are remaining, Remain for fellowship and then remember to remain. It's all about keeping fellowship with God. So warning for those who don't remain in verses 18 and 19. John begins by addressing his readers as little children. You see John's warm, fatherly affection for his congregation. It's like they are his spiritual children. John's very old at this point. And he's, he's writing simultaneously to warn, encourage, and assure these people. Much like you would warn, encourage, and assure at the same time your children. But there's urgency here. This isn't a passive conversation. It's the last hour, he says in verse 18. If you read the New Testament, you'll come across phrases like this, the last days, the last time, the last hour. Most often, they're referring to the same thing. The time between Jesus' first coming and when he comes again, when he returns again. That means the last hour, the last days are are right now. Jesus brought about a new age. That means the world is passing away. Darkness is passing away. And yet in these last days, with the church, between Jesus' first and second coming, evil and satanic forces are making their final assault on the world and specifically on God's people. It's like the final assault, the last grasp of air before they are finally defeated. For John, this, the evidence of this is the presence of Antichrist. It's kind of a strange term. It, usually we only find this in kind of strange apocalyptic movies we, we might watch if you're into apocalyptic movies, I guess. But verses 18 and 19 will explain more. As you have heard that the Antichrist is coming... Even now, many antichrists have come. This is how we know that it is the last hour. Jesus himself, when he was on the earth, taught that at the end time, an influential figure is going to come about, okay? And this influential figure will come with miraculous signs. He'll come claiming the very authority of Jesus, but this antichrist, he'll be deceiving people. He won't be the true Christ, and he will be a deceiver. 
Yet until that final episode, when we see that final antichrist mimicking the authority of Christ, but really not being Christ. John says that there are those who embody the spirit of antichrist since they too deny Jesus Christ. Verse 22 tells us what the spirit of antichrist is. If you look down, it is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the antichrist denying the father and the son. And of course, these were the people who were in this congregation. He's calling, kind of foreshadowing of the the final Antichrist. Verse 19 reveals the true nature of these people who have denied Jesus Christ. So he's going to tell you what they're like. Let's read in verse 19. They went out from us, but, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. So, these false teachers, they were part of the local church. They sat in the pews. They appeared to be genuine believers if you were just looking at them. But they were denying the true identity of Christ. They were denying the core of the very gospel that Jesus preached. And they could no longer call themselves Christians, and so they left the community of Christ. And when I say they left the church, I don't mean they left their church to go down to another gospel-preaching, gospel-teaching, Anglican or evangelical church down the street, okay? They, They weren't just going to another good church that we would say, yeah, great, go there. No, they were abandoning the community of Christ. And, and John says, that's evidence that they actually never truly belonged to Christ and his church. It's not that these people were Christians, friends, and then became non-Christians. That's how it appeared, of course, right? That's how, what's, what it looked like to the eyes. But John's saying, the truth is, is that their going out showed that they actually never experienced the saving grace of Christ. I want you to pause and reflect on John's reasoning here. This isn't the main point, but John's reasoning is interesting. Their hearts, their hearts are revealed by their abandonment of Christ's community, the church. Friends, I want you to think about that. John connects true faith with commitment to a true church, doesn't he? Again, this isn't the main point of the passage, but you can see how John thinks about the relationship between your personal faith and your participation in a local church. To abandon the community of Christ, again, that doesn't mean going on to another gospel-preaching church. To abandon the community of Christ reveals a heart that has abandoned Christ. Why? Why in John's mind is abandoning the community of Christ an abandonment of Christ himself? What's the connection there for John? I think just a chapter later, a couple chapters later, in 1 John 4.12, I think if you just look on the other side, 1 John 4.12, chapter 4, verse 12, gives us the answer. John in chapter 4 is talking about God's love and our love. It's a beautiful passage. Ian's going to speak on it later. And the, the basic point is because God is love, we should also love one another. Pretty simple, 
Because God is love, we should love one another. And in chapter 4, verse 12, John makes this very strange logical leap. He, he says, no one has ever seen God. And I remember the reading this for the first time thinking, what in the world? Why would he start talking about the invisibility of God in the middle of a section about love? Doesn't seem to make sense. It's like, be love, God knows everything. What's the connection? But the remainder of the verse answers my question. It goes like this, but if we love one another, God lives in us. It dawned on me, John is saying Jesus, who reveals the glory of God to us in human form. Right? Jesus reveals God to us so we know what God is like. He, he's, no, he's no longer uniquely among us, is he? You can't go to Nazareth and find Jesus anymore. But the church, the community of Christ that shows love for one another makes God visible. God reveals himself uniquely in this age through local communities called churches. That's why to abandon the community of Christ is to abandon Christ himself. But, but he isn't writing to those, John isn't writing to those who abandoned the church. He's writing to those who have remained. And he wants to reassure them. So number two, assurance for those who are remaining. You who have remained, he says, first assurance, you have the Holy Spirit. Verse 20, but you have an anointing from the Holy One and all of you know the truth. What's this anointing? In the Old Testament, kings would be anointed with oil. And the pouring of oil on the head of the king would signify that the Spirit of God was resting upon the king to help him rule with justice and righteousness, like God, okay? In the New Testament, it is the believer who is anointed by God, not with oil, but with the Spirit of God. Any person who puts their faith in Christ is given the Spirit of God to help him reflect Jesus. I can't, I can't reflect Jesus on my own. I need help. And that help comes from the Spirit. He's saying those who abandoned, they're not the right ones. You who have remained, you actually have the true Spirit. And this actually speaks into something that, that many Christians, maybe even some in our own congregation, kind of a belief people have had over the years about how the Spirit works. The New Testament teaches that you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and repent of your sins. There are no Christians absent of the Spirit. In the last couple of centuries, a certain teaching became popularized in, in Britain and America that, that often said, new Christians enter the faith, you might say, with kind of a baby dose of the Spirit. And then what you need is a full dose of the Spirit, a second blessing of the Spirit, and then you would be truly a committed Christian, okay? The first blessing kind of gets you saved, and the second blessing of the Spirit kind of gets you serious, if that makes sense. 
The result is, with this teaching, is you get Christian churches divided between level A Christians with a full dose of the Spirit and level B Christians with a small dose of the Spirit, and they're kind of nominal Christians, Christians in name only. I want to stress to you that if you have put your faith in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit, all of them. (laughs) Yes, the, the Spirit helps us grow incrementally, into Christ like us. Yes, there are more mature Christians and there are less mature Christians. But if you are a Christian, you have all the resources you can have for, for, for following in Christ likeness. John doesn't divide Christians into two categories, nominal Christians and serious Christians. He doesn't do that. There are, for John, those who have the Spirit, Christians. And those who don't have the Spirit, non-Christians who walk in darkness. That's it. So John's saying, therefore, church, you don't need this esoteric teaching. If you have the Spirit, you already know the truth. All these people have gone away. They're speculating about Christ, but they they haven't encountered the real Christ, and they don't have the real Spirit. Secondly, he assures them by, by telling them that they know the truth. John says to them, I'm not writing because I'm worried that you don't know the truth. I'm writing because I don't want you to begin doubting the truth you already do know. He's assuring them. John, John is writing his, this letter. This is actually, this is really helpful for me to understand in, in reading this. John is writing this letter first to reassure Christians and only secondarily to, to challenge and warn them. John's going to come about and say some very difficult things. <laughs> very challenging things, as as Rob mentioned last week in the coming verses. But I do think we should start here. If you have put your faith in Jesus, if you have repented of your sin, you need to hear his words first as a spiritual father giving you reassurance. And if you are prideful in your assurance, that's when you need to hear them as a challenge. Well, John gets to his main point in verses 22 and 23. Why Okay, why is it so important that we remain tethered to the accurate identity of Jesus Christ? His answer is, you must remain tethered to to a right view of Christ for fellowship. Fellowship with God is at stake. So point three, remain for fellowship. Verse 22, we already read it, but whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ... Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. Okay, so a little background here once again. The false teachers in the church began to deny the true identity of Jesus. They denied that he was the eternal Son of God. They denied that he truly came in the flesh. And John is saying he was truly God and truly human, Why is this so important? Why is it so important to get Jesus right and not wrong? And you might be wondering, Luke, why does it matter so much if if we think differently about who Jesus is? You know, why does it matter? Isn't it, uh, you may be thinking right now, Luke, isn't it important that we admire Jesus and live like him? Do we really need to have the same opinion about who he was? 
At one level, I think this seems like a reasonable question. Why don't we just worry about living like Jesus and not get so worked up about how we think about Jesus? This kind of thinking is ingrained in how we think today. I was just at Waterstones the other, the other day, meeting with a, a member of our, our, our church, and, and I got into a conversation with a gentleman nearby me who was reading a book on human flourishing. It was, it was, how can we really live the good life? And I go, wow, that's interesting. I got in a conversation with him. I go, I've, I've spoke about that topic before, so what does it say? And as we chatted, I told him I was a Christian minister. And his initial reaction to that was, well, that's interesting. You know, we as humans, I think, we, we as humans, inherently, we know what it means to live a good and moral life. And I think we all just have different paths of motivating us to live that good life that we all aspire to. And he, he kept on going. He goes, for some, they find the, spa- the path of living a good life in Buddhism. He said, for me, I... I find the path of living a good and moral life within kind of evolutionary progress. And for you, you find it in Christianity. Isn't that amazing? But what he said, what's really important for all of us is that we would all strive to live a good life. That's what we really care about, what you do. Do you notice his thought process? What he's thinking is, what you think doesn't matter as long as what you do is right. And you might be thinking, that's fairly sensible. What you think doesn't matter as long as you do what's right. And that kind of thinking is found even amongst Christians all the time. What what does it matter what he thinks as long as they live like Christ? First, It matters because Christ wants full reign over your life, and that includes the life of your mind. He wants your full worship and devotion, and not just the worship and devotion of your body, but the worship and devotion of your mind. God cares how you think. He cares that you think rightly about him. Don't start believing the idea That God cares about what you do, but not about the way you think. Why in the world would the life of the mind be totally sectioned off from everything else in the world? Jesus reigns over everything, and that includes over your mind, what you think. Secondly, I don't ultimately think that you can divide between thinking rightly and doing rightly. If you don't think rightly about Christ, you aren't worshiping the true Christ. John says if you aren't worshiping the true Christ, then you don't have the true spirit. If you don't have the true spirit, then you have no power for transformation. If you don't have the power behind true transformation, how in the world are you going to live a life that honors God? Thinking and doing can't ultimately be divided. So he cares. God cares about what we think. Of course, that's not to know. He cares about what we do. I mean, he'll, he'll criticize Pharisees all the time because he, they say, you, you know the facts, you know the right things, but you don't live like them. Ultimately, they can't be divided. Verse 23, 
No one, deni- no one who denies the Son has the Father. Why the unbreakable connection between Jesus and the Father? If you deny the Son, you deny the Father. I think first it's because Jesus is the one, the Son is the one who reveals the Father. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, but his Son, Jesus, has made him known to us. Jesus reveals the Father to us, so if you deny the Son, you deny the Father. But, but secondly, it's Jesus who represents us. He reconciles us to the Father. So if we deny Jesus, we have no one to reconcile us to God, to make our relationship right with God, the Father. As Rob said last week in chapter 2, verse 1, Jesus is our advocate before the Father. And if we deny him, we cut off our access to him. At the end of verse 23, he says, whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. This, this is the beauty of the Christian life is that God, by his spirit, brings you into fellowship with himself. God doesn't simply declare, you know, we have this language, God doesn't simply declare you righteous as a judge declares an innocent person righteous. He does do that. He could have stopped there, but he didn't. He declares you righteous and you are now an innocent victim before him, but then he brings you into intimate relationship with him as a father and a son or daughter. You share in the life of the father, the son, and the spirit. This divine life coursing through your spiritual body brings you power to overcome sin, John will say. It gives you power to endure hardship. You share in the joy that that is spread between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. You share in the love that overflows from the Father to the Son and the Son to the Father and the Father to the Son and the Spirit. And you're caught up in that through the Spirit. He brings you into divine life. Paul says to deny Christ is to forsake all that. Why would you do it? The last three verses are a call to guard yourself. Guard yourself from following some false view of Christ. It's a call to remembrance. You need to remember certain truths so that you remain in fellowship with God. Point four, remember to remain. First in verse 24, he He says, remember the message. Verse 24, as for you, see what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. John's saying, first of all, don't forget that apostolic message. The teaching that Jesus handed down to his apostles, the same gospel, that message that Paul defended so ferociously to the Galatians, we learned about that last quarter, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the divine Son of God, fully human, died on the cross in the place of sinners so that we didn't have to have the, face the wrath of God, but we only face his delight and joy because Jesus gave us his righteousness all the while taking our sin so that we don't have to face God's good and right judgment. Just like Paul tells the Galatians, any teaching 
that deviates from that message is anti-gospel, anti-Christ. You know, we live in, we live in a day where we, we tend to think, <laughs> we tend to think of a thi- uh, uh, <clears throat> the quality of a thing or the goodness of a thing is judged on the basis of its newness, right? I think it's because we live in a largely scientific <clears throat> and technological age where newness is often equated with progress, and sometimes rightfully so. I'm thankful that we live in an age with modern medicine and modern science and modern technology. I'm not lamenting that at all. But there is a danger in thinking that because it's 2018, and because we think we're so modern and civilized, that any idea that's new or has progressed is better or more moral. I'll often, I was just listening to a, a podcast about some moral issue the, re, the other day. And you know, the greatest, the, these two guys were discussing this, and they were on the right side of the moral issue. But you know what their reasoning for this was? It's 2018, come on. And I thought to myself, how pathetic. Your greatest reasoning for what's right or wrong is that it's 2018? What are you going to say in 2058? It's incredibly prideful, as if what we're doing in 2018 is the standard of goodness and morality. John calls us back to an ancient message. He says, don't progress beyond the gospel. Don't make up a new and proved version of Christ. Because if you do, you may lose Christ. It doesn't matter whether an idea is old or it's new, what matters is if it's true. Remember the promise, he says. Remember the message, remember the promise, verse 25. And this is what he promised us, eternal life. One of the ways we endure in the Christian faith, this is a call to endure, persevere in the faith. One of the ways we remain in Christ is by constantly reminding ourselves that if we possess Jesus, we possess eternal life. Do you think about that? It's very easy to get caught up in this life. Do you think about what's going on for eternity? We often think of eternal life. I, I often do this. I think of eternal life as this thing that God grants us in order to allure us into obedience. Kind of what I do with my children with like candy at times. I, you know, um, I allure them into obedience by saying, hey, you can have this. You know, we're doing a little, we're doing a little bartering here. It's, it's not a great parenting, uh, but, but that's what we do. So, you know, sometimes it gets to that, right? C.S. Lewis describes our reception of eternal life in the same way as we receive warmth from drawing near to a fire or wetness by jumping into a pool of water. When you become in possession through the Spirit of God of divine life, you share in God's life and there is nothing but eternal life in God. It's, it's more like you, you, you get caught up into eternal life. Lewis says, once a man is united to God, how could he not live forever? Once a man is separated from God, what can he do but wither and die? 
So remember eternal life. Lastly, remember the Spirit. Verses 26 and 27. I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you received from him remains in you. And you do not need anyone to teach you, but as his, teaching, as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as the anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. The anointing they received, as I mentioned earlier, is nothing other than the gift of the Holy Spirit. The most fundamental defense that you have against the deception of false teachers is that the Spirit of Christ dwells in you. There's really nothing for them to do other than remember that the Spirit lives in you. You can't, you can't make more of the Spirit in you. He's just saying, remember this. Remember, I've got you, he says. Have confidence that God will keep you faithful because the Spirit lives in you. So much of the application in the New Testament isn't do this or do that. It's remember, don't forget, delight in this truth. Honestly, one of the applications you you should go home with often is just when you read the truths of Scripture, delight in God and remember what the truth it, it's, it's not some incredibly profound thing. It's just remember, delight, have joy, treasure this truth. And John, oh, sorry, because you have the Spirit, then Paul says, you don't need anyone to teach you. Now, let me say, that, that gets a little strange. Luke, have, have you just preached yourself out of a sermon? Right? If, if we don't need anybody to teach us, what, what in the world are you doing up there? I think this could be exaggerated. Does he mean Christians shouldn't accept teaching from anyone? I don't think so. Why? Well, because John's teaching in this very letter, right? It would make the whole letter redundant, wouldn't it? But secondly, presumably this church, like all other New Testament churches, they had pastors. And they had teachers and elders. and, And the job of a teacher and elder from 1 Timothy is to teach. So certainly he's not saying that You have no need for any kind of teaching. You have to remember the context in which he's writing. Those who have left the church are claiming to have some mystical, esoteric, higher, new teaching that goes beyond the message they heard from the apostles. Okay? And they're imploring the church to follow their new teaching. He says, you don't know this because we've been given this special, special knowledge here. And John is saying to those who have remained, you already know all things regarding Jesus' identity and the gospel message. That core message, we've already given it all to you. The Spirit has already confirmed in your hearts all things regarding that. You don't need new teaching about who Jesus is or what he did because you already have it and you already have the Spirit And the Spirit never leads you into falsehood. John closes with the most important command in verse 27. The last three words, the main point, remain in him. Remember the ancient message. Remember the promise. He holds out eternal life for those who are united to Christ. 
Remember, you have the Spirit in you. You don't need to worry about this new speculative philosophy about Christ. You have the true Christ. Friends, that's what we want to labor to do week in and week out from this podium. We desperately do not want to come to you giving you a Savior in our own image. And that is very easy to do, isn't it? That's why, we, that's why every week we, we say, as we come in here, we point you to the text. We try not to say, listen to our clever speculative philosophy. We try to say, are we being faithful to God's word? We want to dig into the word. We want to wrestle with texts of scripture so that you encounter the real Christ. The only Christ with transformative power to save your life. It's, imp- it's important for you to daily take up this word. It's not just when you come here on Sunday. You have the word of God, the word of Christ in your hand. In your hand. And you have the spirit of Christ that illumines, that opens up the word to you. So take that book the Bible. Put down your phone for just a few minutes a day. Put down the constant cycle of news stories. Put down the social media and the, put down the Facebook. I'm speaking to myself here. You can ask my wife. She knows I'm preaching to myself here. Encounter the real Christ in his word. Here, here you'll, if, we, if we encounter the real Christ, you will find a Christ who re- critiques your conservative agenda. You're going to find a Christ who critiques your progressive agenda. In the Bible, you're going to find a Christ who critiques your friends and who critiques your enemies. Here in the Bible, you're going to find a Christ who offers forgiveness even to those who the culture says are beyond forgiveness. Here in the Bible, you're going to find a Christ that demands compassion, justice, mercy, fairness, equality, and you're going to find a Christ who demands holiness and purity. Here you'll find a Christ who demands submission of your whole heart and soul and mind, not just the bit that you want to give them and then you're going to keep some for yourself. But he demand, Jesus demands submission because your joy is at stake. Through Jesus, you have fellowship with the Father. Your joy and happiness you will find in a restored relationship to the Creator of the universe will overshadow any joy and happiness you find elsewhere. And he knows because he created you for that. He wired you for joy and happiness in himself. And so when you go looking for joy and happiness in other things other than himself, they will all point to him, but they will all fall short. It's like with my children. 
when I tell them to obey me for some certain reason, they don't realize it, right? But I have their joy in mind. I know if they don't follow what I'm saying right now, that it's gonna lead to some harm to them, they're not going to grow up in the right way, and they don't see beyond the, the thing right in front of them. But, but Sarah and I, hopefully, in as much as we're following God, we want joy for them. We want happiness. We want flourishing and success. And we see, so we, we set up roadblocks here, or we give them instruction there. And, and if, it, sometimes you just want to crawl in the little three-year-old mind and say, I'm not saying this to harm you. I'm giving it to you for your joy. And it's so clear to us as parents, but, but they just don't get it. And I think that's, in a very small way, similar to us with, with God. I, I talked about my conversion before. I, I used to think that everything the Bible said about morality was just a hindrance to me enjoying life. And one of the biggest breakthroughs in my life is when I realized that God had my maximum joy in everything he gives us. Fellowship with God. Communion with him. Divine life is in you through faith and repentance. That is true religion. That's where you find delight and joy and satisfaction and contentment. God created you for joy in fellowship with him. There are cheap substitutes for that, for fellowship with him, and they'll never satisfy like an intimate, restored relationship with God, who is your ultimate father. So remain in him. Don't follow after another Christ. Dig into the word, find the true Christ. Worship him and submit to him.